Amen. Thanks, Adam. If you've got a Bible, hard copy, electronic copy, I'm going to invite you to open up to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John is in the little uh, books at the back of your New Testament before Revelation, after Hebrews, but before Revelation, just kind of hone in there. And while you get yourself situated, I have three like news and notes to pass along really briefly. The first one is about Christmas Eve. And that is last week I mentioned uh, that three services, one, three, five, that three o'clock is probably going to be the most crowded, that there'd be childcare, our hope at three and five, but we needed volunteers for five o'clock in order to make that happen. We were not able to come up with enough volunteers in order to provide childcare at five o'clock. So there's only going to be childcare at three o'clock, which means three o'clock became more crowded, more than likely. Um, and if, if you have kids, young, young kids that would have been in childcare and you're comfortable holding them on your lap or bringing something for them to sort of play with or whatever, uh, you can come to one or five and they can be with us in the service and that is wonderful and nobody's going to have a problem with that. So we would invite you to do that. If you don't have kids and you're planning on coming at three and you could make a little bit of three o'clock space for us by coming at either one or five, we would, we would really appreciate that. Um, the second announcement is about services on Sunday, December 26th, so a week from today. There will only be two services on that day, eight o'clock and this service at 945. Kids Point will happen like normal at both of those services, but there won't be an 1130 service. And then the last little note is that as we've done over the last few years, on the Sunday before Christmas, in between services, we have a group of people who come in and they sing carols for us. And so they're here today. They'll, they'll come in right after service. Um, we sang some Christmas carols to open our service. We'll, we'll sing some more to close our service. But if you just can't get enough, I would invite you to just hang out and kind of linger around in here while that group uh, just kind of serves us by, by singing. Uh, they do a great job. Uh, I would invite you to stick around and listen to that for a little while. Sound good? All right. First John chapter 4. Opened up to there, uh, as I've mentioned the last few weeks, we kind of punched pause on Luke during the Advent season so we could see what the Bible has to say, the New Testament has to say about the Advent of Jesus, his coming into the world. What's the New Testament say about that outside of the gospel accounts? And so we started that process in Ephesians chapter two, talking about the reality of sin, that that's the reason that Jesus had to come. And we miss an important part of the Advent season if we skip over the fact that the reality of sin is the reason that Jesus came into the world at all. And then last week, we looked at Galatians 4 and Hebrews chapter 1 in order to talk about the reality of waiting, that Israel waited thousands of years for the Messiah, Jesus, to finally be born. And a key facet of following Jesus today is often that we enter into these long, difficult seasons of waiting. And Advent reminds us that God will be faithful to fulfill his promises. Advent reminds us that God both commands and empowers our patience. And Advent reminds us that all of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. That's where we left off last week. This week, we're going to just pick up all the themes that Adam talked about in our uh, sort of Advent candle reflection time there about love. First John, the letter is all about the reality of God's love and what that love means for God's people. And so we're just gonna camp out on that topic by looking at 
1 John chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. We're going to read this multiple times over the course of our service. Uh, so kind of get comfortable with it here the first time we read it. If you're able to this first time through, would you stand as we read God's word? This is what the word of God says in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent the son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This is where we're headed this morning, that the advent of Jesus, God reveals who he is and who his people are to be. This passage, why is it that we would use this as a passage to talk about advent? Well, because verse nine gives it to us very straight. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world. That is the good news of Christmas. Yes? Yes. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to work through these verses uh, one time in order to draw out truths about God and love. What are the sort of theological truths that undergird that, uh, those two items? And then we're going to go through the passage a second time. What are the implications then for God's people? And in the middle of that, we'll kind of pause and tie ourselves in with Israel like we've done over the last few weeks. Multiple times in the letter of 1 John, John the author takes kind of an extended period to just sort of riff on the idea of love. He does so in chapter three. He does so again in chapter four. In fact, the whole letter could be summarized by saying that 1 John is all about the nature of love, both as it relates to God and as it relates to God's people. And so I'm going to reread this passage, and I'm going to pull four truths out of this about the nature of God's love. Those four truths are not an exhaustive list of everything we could say about God's love. They're not even necessarily the only things you could lift out of this passage, but they're four that I think are important for us while we think about Advent and the birth of Jesus. So if you want to follow along with me, I'll just pull them out as I read. Dear friends, let us love one another because, truth number one, Love is from God. Love originates in God. Going on. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, does not know God because, and here's truth number two, God is love. So it's not just that love originates in God, it's that love is characteristic of God. God's love was revealed among us in this way. Here's truth number three. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him, that love's ultimate expression 
is found in Jesus. Verse 10, love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's truth number four, that God's love exists independent of humanity's response to him. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. We're gonna talk through each of those four sort of theological truths about the nature of God's love. And in doing so, I'm gonna work with them out of order. That's not because I think John got the order wrong in his letter. That's because John's brain and my brain work very differently. Paul is very linear. He would be like your left brain sort of thinker. When Paul works through something, he starts at what he deems to begin the logical beginning point and he builds an argument to its logical end point. John, on the other hand, I think is what we would consider a right brain thinker. He's just sort of like out there swirling in the ethereal reality of God's love and he'll just tell you about it in whatever order he wants to because that's the way his brain works both in his gospel and in all of his letters. I can't hang with John in that process. So I need to like set these things out in order for myself so that I can understand them. And that's how I'm gonna, I'm gonna handle them this morning. When we talk about anything that God does, we do so in relation to who God is. And that's very important. So when it comes to God and love, it isn't enough to say that God does things that are loving. That's true, but it's incomplete. It also isn't enough to say that God is generally inclined toward love. Again, he is inclined toward love, but that's incomplete. It isn't enough to say that God always acts lovingly. Again, true, but incomplete. Love is not merely a thing that God does. Love is a thing that God is. And that is where I want to start. Verse eight, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. Love is characteristic of God. That is the most accurate way to talk about God and love, that he is love. God is the fullness of all of his vast and various characteristics. When we talk about God having patience or extending mercy or acting justly, we're making true statements, but we're actually short-selling the reality of God in those characteristics. It's not untrue to say those things, but it isn't fully complete to leave them there. As with love, God is the fullness of each and every one of his qualities. So God is patience. God is mercy. God is justice. And in the case of our passage today, John comes right out and tells us, God is love. He is the fullness of all of his qualities. So then back up to verse seven. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. So love is characteristic of God. Love originates in God. If love is who God is, then by extension, it follows that God is the origin of that love. That would be true of any of God's characteristics. 
How do we know what mercy is? We know what mercy is because God is mercy. How do we know what patience is? We know what patience is because God is patience. How do we know what justice is? We know what justice is because God is justice. In the world that God created, all of his qualities find expression in his creation. And so God creates humanity in his image and we only know these sorts of qualities because God is those things. We could go beyond those statements though. Why does mercy even exist? Mercy exists because the God who made humanity is mercy. Why do humans love? Because God, whose image we're made in, is love. What's John saying about love in verse seven? That Christians love one another because we have seen and experienced the one who is both the full embodiment of love and who is the origin of love in the world. Are you with me? Okay, two more. Look at verse 10. Love consists in this. Okay, God is love. We know that that is who he is. Love originates in God, John says. Now John's going to tell us what is the ultimate expression of that love. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So there's something about God's love and all of its completeness that is in no way dependent on our response to him. God's love exists independent of humanity's response. That is to say that God is love whether or not any aspect of his creation loves him in return. God does not love because the stuff he created loves him back. He loves because he is love. God has always existed eternally in the perfect love of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Nothing's ever lacked in that eternal relationship. And so it's for that reason that God has never had to do anything in order to get a response that would somehow make up for what he lacks in and of himself. God acts in order to get the glory that he deserves, not because he lacks or he needs something. So why does God create? Because he is love not because he needs something from creation. Why does God call a specific people, Israel, to himself? Because he is love, not because he needed something from Israel. Why does God make galaxies that humanity's never going to see and phantom jellyfish that only appear to human eyes like one time a year and spiders that no one likes? Because he is love. And all of his creating and all of his acting in human history is an expression of what he is, not the hope of getting a response to himself. And that leads us to the last truth, verse nine. God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love's ultimate expression is found in Jesus. The nature of love is that it must manifest itself. It must reveal itself. As Adam said a few minutes ago, any talk of love that doesn't reveal itself in action is not love at all. All that God has ever done, all that God does, and all that God will ever do is a manifestation of his very nature is love. And the ultimate, most glorious, most wondrous expression of God's characteristic love is the sending of his son. Take verse nine and verse 10 and put them together. God's love was revealed among us in this way. 
God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent his one and only son. There's Christmas. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Christmas and the cross shoved into two verses right there. And it's the cross that ultimately gives Christmas its meaning. Because if you try to take Christmas and hold it up as something really special without the cross, what you've got is some weird sentimentality about a random baby born in the Middle East a couple thousand years ago. That only gains its eternal significance because of the cross at Easter. And so 1 John 4, 9 and 10 tell us that because God is love and love originates in God and he does not need any response from humanity in order for him to be loving, he sent his son as the ultimate expression of love in all of the universe. That's the good news of Christmas, amen? Amen. So in the advent of Jesus, God reveals who he is. He is love and who his people are to be. We'll get to the second part of that statement in just a moment. But let's root ourselves back in Israel's waiting for the Messiah. If you take the last few weeks, we put them all together. Israel trapped in their sin, waiting thousands of years for the one to come who would crush the head of the serpent, the author of sin, Satan. And what do they deserve in their waiting? Well, what Israel and all of humanity would deserve is for God to do something that would bring the just punishment that humanity's sin deserves. And the thinking among the Israelites, the Jewish people, in their time of waiting was that when the Messiah came, he would do just that. He would bring just punishment on all the sinners who aren't Israel. Like Jesus would come and he would mete out justice on all these other sinful people. That's what they're waiting for. And God in Jesus shows up and he absolutely brings justice to all sinners, Israel included. But he does so in a way that was unexpected. And he does so in a way that doesn't just fit with any one of his characteristics, but fulfills all of his characteristics. God sends his son, the Messiah, to bring justice and truth and wrath, and punishment. And God sends his son, the Messiah, to bring mercy, and grace, and love, and peace. All of that comes in one package in a surprising way. The punishment doesn't fall on Israel, it falls on Jesus. Justice isn't brought to bear on the humanity of the world, it's placed on the shoulders of Jesus. The wrath that humanity deserves becomes the wrath that Jesus endures. And grace, mercy, patience, love display themselves as Jesus bears justice, wrath, and punishment. In Jesus, God deals with humanity's sin, crushes the head of the author of sin, and upholds the fullness of his character without even the smallest compromise to any bit of who he is. That's why John says, we know what love is because God sent his son. In the sending of Jesus, amid all of Israel and all of humanity's sin, in the middle of Israel's long waiting, God loves Israel and he loves all of humanity perfectly. Advent allows us the opportunity to stand in awe of God, whose ways and thoughts are higher than our ways. But it also gives us an opportunity to stand in awe of a God whose love and grace and mercy and wisdom and truth and justice and righteousness and holiness and goodness and kindness are higher than ours. 
the perfection and glory of Jesus' advent is why the angel in the field tells the shepherds, don't be afraid. I proclaim good news of great joy that will be for all the people because God has revealed the fullness of who he is in all of his glorious perfection in a baby born in Bethlehem. And he's done so because he is love. What God or what Israel and humanity deserve is wrath and judgment. What they get is love incarnate, God in flesh. So we're gonna walk back through this passage. We're gonna put a different lens on it now. And this time, rather than looking at the truths of God's love, we're going to look for the implication for God's people because at the advent of Jesus, God reveals who he is, love, and who his people are to be. So who are we supposed to be? That's the question as we walk back through this. I'm gonna just point the truths out again as we go. Dear friends, let us love one another. There's number one. Love is a command for God's people because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, here's implication number two, we also must love one another. We'll talk about that word must momentarily, but it's not just that we're commanded to love, it's actually that we are compelled to love. That's the second implication for God's people. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is, here's number three, made complete in us. That raises some questions. What does it mean that God's love is made complete in his people? This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the father has sent the son as the world's, or his son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. There's truth number four, that love abides in God's people. And then last, and we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. The last is that God's love is tangible for God's people. Same process as before. We're gonna talk through all of those, but I'm going backwards because that's the way it makes the most sense to me. Look at verse 16. We have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Love is tangible for God's people. That's an implication for us. Why? Because the people of God are those who have seen and know and believe and confess the love of God. There's a definite starting point to that. I don't want to bore you with all of the grammar of it, but the verb tenses in verses 15 and 16 point to a one-time beginning spot for God's people when they recognize this tangible reality of God's love. We become the people of God when the grace of God opens our eyes to the tangible reality of his love displayed to us in Christ. To be one of God's people is not to talk theoretically about the love of God displayed in Jesus. To be one of God's people is to confess and know and believe that love in a tangible way. To be one of God's people is to have this moment or this season in your life where you see by God's grace, the reality of who Jesus is sent into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for your sin. And by faith in Jesus Christ, you take hold of a tangible love. That's what it is to be God's people. 
And if you've not had that definite starting point, that could be happening for you right now today. The Holy Spirit, by God's grace, could be opening the eyes of your heart to the reality of God's love displayed to you in Jesus. And if that is happening, I can't encourage you enough to step into that. Receive that gift of grace by faith in Jesus Christ. Love is tangible for God's people. Then back up to verse 15. This actually runs its way through verses 13, 14, and 15. But verse 15 says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. Love abides in God's people. Now you would say, Tim, this says that God remains in God's people and God's people remain in God. You're saying love abides. How can you make that jump? Do you remember when you were in geometry, like high school, junior high sort of age, and you had to do like a whole year's worth of math with words? Oh man, like you needed to prove X starting at A and it required two columns of a proof with some theorems and some postulates and you were opposite angles are congruent and yada, 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 yada until you got down to proving the, the bottom line point. You remember that? It was awful. Yeah, if you don't remember it, it's because you've blocked it out appropriately. I'm gonna give you a real quick two column proof here about why it is that I can make that statement from this verse. We're told, John says, that God is love. That is the reality of who he is. And we know that Jesus, the son, is God from all of eternity. So if God is love and the son is God, the son is love. Yeah, you with me so far? Okay. We also know that when God's love becomes tangible to God's people and by his grace, they place their faith in Jesus Christ, we get the Holy Spirit. Now the Holy Spirit is God. And if God is love, then the Holy Spirit is love. And if when we become believers, the Holy Spirit takes up residence inside of us, what abides in us? Love. Whew. There's your proof. So when this passage says, God remains in his people, him and he, his people in God, we can say truthfully, theologically, that love remains in God's people and God's people remain in love. That is a true statement. And it's one of the greatest gifts of God's grace. If you were listening on the podcast or you were here last week and we talked about Psalm 23 and I made the statement that when David says in Psalm 23 that surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, there's an actually more beautiful picture of that in the New Testament because goodness and mercy in the person of Jesus actually dwell within the believer. So it's not that goodness and mercy are like chasing behind you in your wake while you're running away. It's that they literally exist inside of you. What beautiful truth that is. The same is true with love. It abides in you and you abide in it. Back up a little further. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. Raises, raises an immediate question. Was it incomplete before? We've already said that the reality of love is that it must display or manifest itself and that God's love has revealed itself, displayed itself supremely in Christ. But that love is not done revealing itself in the world. That love continues to go forth. It does so in a myriad of ways. One of those ways is through God's people. We've seen it and taken hold of it. It abides in us. We abide in it. Now that love moves through us and outward. And the only way I can think to illustrate this is with reservoirs and aqueducts. Hang with me. 
In our world today, because our sewer lines and stuff, our water lines are buried under the ground, this isn't like the easiest picture, but think Rome or something. There's a reservoir of water where all of it pools up and is held, but the city's not right by it. So they've got to get the water from the reservoir to the city. How did they do it? They built these aqueducts that carried the water over to the city. Now, oftentimes when we talk about love in Christian circles, we almost act as though we're the reservoir. Like all of God's love pours into me and it just sort of pools up there and I collect it all and this is fantastic. But that is not the biblical picture of love. The biblical picture of love is that God is the reservoir that will never be exhausted and God's people are the aqueduct. It's moving into you and through you out to other people. So God's love is made complete. The fullness of its picture is displayed to the world when the reservoir of God's love flows through the aqueduct of God's people out into God's world. Make sense? That is the biblical picture. And that's what this means when it says that love is made complete in God's people. It moves through them. Verse 11 says, dear friends, if God loved us in this way, by sending his son, we must love one another. That word must means that we're constrained by it, like we have no choice. Love is compelled within God's people. God's people are those who have heard, known, believed, and confessed his love. That love abides in them. They abide in it. It is made complete as it moves through us. And the amazing part is that we don't have to muster up the ability to love. If God who is love abides in you and you abide in him as one of his people, then you don't have to fight and try to like build up some sense of love inside of you. It exists in you and it moves through you and you can't help but love. In fact, the whole of 1 John says, if you want to know who is a follower of Jesus, look for the love because they cannot help but love. They're constrained by it. They must love because love abides in them and they have no other choice. We're compelled to love. There's a common illustration that pastors and Bible teachers use about this topic and it's an illustration of light and fire. That light bulbs produce light because they are light and fire produces heat because it is heat and we are like light bulbs and fire. We love because we cannot help but love. That is what we must do. To use Jesus's imagery, it's like salt. But if salt's not salty, it must not actually be salt. Love abides in us. We abide in love. And we cannot help but love, therefore. And the one who does not love does not know God. John says that here. Throughout 1 John, the actual test of whether or not someone has tangibly taken hold of the love that God has for us, displayed to us in Jesus Christ, is whether or not they love. You want definitive proof, look for the love, John says. John Piper talks about this verse this way, or this truth in this way. When John says we ought to love each other, he means ought the way fish ought to swim in water, and birds ought to fly in the air, and living creatures ought to breathe, and peaches ought to be sweet, and lemons ought to be sour, and hyenas ought to laugh. Born-again people ought to love. It's who we are. This is not mere imitation. For the children of God, imitation fades away in place of realization. What does he mean by realization? 
that those who have known, believed, and confessed the love displayed to us by God in the sending of his son, those who have love abiding in us, who have love made complete in us, we need not muster up the strength to imitate Christ. We need instead to submit ourselves to God's love working in us and abiding in us so that that love is realized in us. Those are two very different things. If you think that the proof of your faith in Jesus is going to be that you muster up all of the strength necessary to love people well enough, you've turned your salvation into a works project and you will come up short. The primary task of living in relationship with Jesus is submitting to the person of Christ at work and alive inside of us by the Holy Spirit. In this context, it's submitting to the love that abides inside of us and ought to move through us. We don't have to fight and work to make that happen. We submit so that Jesus lives through us. God's love exists through his people. And then last, verse seven, in a way that's not a contradiction at all, love is also a command. Dear friends, let us love one another. Well, why would you command that which we're already compelled toward? Is a fair question. But God can command in his word that his people love because he's going to bring that love to realization in them. Last week, we said that patience is both a command and a gift. Well, so too is love. God fulfills within his people that which he commands of his people and he fulfills it by Jesus, ever, only, always by Jesus. Why would God command that which he is compelling his people to do? Because God knows that in giving the command, he's going to bring the fulfillment in Jesus, in his people. In the advent of Jesus, God reveals who he is, he is love, and who his people are to be, and they are to be love. Advent puts before our eyes the ultimate manifestation of God's love in the person of Jesus. And Advent then reminds us that we've seen the love of God in the coming of Jesus. And it reminds us that the people of God have seen and believed that love and we now abide in it. And abiding in that love means it moves through us and is made complete. As God compels us and commands us to live lives of love. I wanna take 90 seconds here to make one final point. Why is it that followers this throughout history and today would give themselves over to compassionate acts for those who are in need, would give themselves over to evangelism for those who are not saved and would give themselves over to something like missions among those who have no access to the gospel. Why is that? Is it just strictly out of obedience to God's command? Well, that's part of it. We are commanded to evangelize, commanded to go to those who do not have the gospel, commanded to do tangible acts of love to people who need it. Is it just because God gifts us to do that? There are people who have the gift of evangelism, people who are gifted and called to go to missions, people who have the gift of mercy or the gifts of service and those types of things, certainly. But the real reason is because love abides in us and we are compelled toward those types of acts. We're compelled to love a broken and a hurting world. We are compelled in love to share the truth of the gospel with those who have not by God's grace placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And we are compelled to go to those who have no access to the gospel. Love is the fundamental reality of who God is. Love is displayed to us in the sending of Jesus Christ. 
Love is what God's people have taken hold of by faith. Love abides in those people and now compels their life. God is love and his people are to be love. We're gonna close this morning with a Christmas hymn. We're gonna start singing this song and you're gonna say, Tim, this is not a Christmas hymn. We sang Christmas hymns before this. The carolers are gonna sing Christmas hymns. You're trying to pull one over on me because we're singing In Christ Alone. And that's not a Christmas hymn. There's a little phrase in the middle of the second verse of In Christ Alone that says this, In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. That's a Christmas hymn, yeah? That's as much a Christmas hymn as 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 is a statement about the advent of Jesus. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, God sent his one and only son into the world. Fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God is love. And with the presence of God in God's people, God's people are to be loved. Amen. Let's sing together.